You know where your voice breaks in the middle? That's where you talk from. So that's the point of most tension. That's actually, you want to to smooth that out. So you actually go up and down there. It's like breaking up a muscle. I still like my... How now, round cow? How now, brown cow? Really opens the mouth. Stretches. Peter Piper picked Lucius Lacus. Okay, that's enough. Welcome to the British English Podcast, everybody. Uh, Today's episode is the first of a kind. It's more about the information side of things, but we're going to keep it conversational still. And this one, as you might have read already, is about the Great Fire of London. Dung, dung, dung. And because I don't know that much, or I didn't know anything until I researched it, I brought my good friend, Ben, who lives in Australia with me at the moment in Balmain. I'm not going to say his um, actual address for security reasons. But yeah, Ben has a bit of uh, insider knowledge about this. So I thought we would get him on and uh, have a conversation about the Great Fire of London. How are you doing, Ben? I'm very good, Charlie. How are you? Yeah, your voice warmed up now? Yes, yes. We were doing some, some great warming up techniques earlier, weren't we? Yes, we were. Yes. Yeah, good. Okay. Why do you know about this stuff, firstly? Well, first of all, I studied history at uni. I did an arts degree, and I've always found history very interesting. Uh, but specifically, when I went to London, I was quite fascinated with the way that it was built and sort of the the road plan and the road map of everything. And I tried to delve into why it was the way that it was, and I sort of started to unravel quite a bit of interesting history. Nice. And when you say you went to London... When was that in your life? Before you begin, I'd like to let you know that we now have an official app released for the British English podcast. You can now listen to this podcast on the new app and get all of the learning resources along with it. And for those of you who are just listening on your favourite podcast app, then I've got a present for you. Download the app, sign up to the course called Free Podcast Worksheets and you will find every single episode available for you to listen to along with the free worksheet for that episode. A huge resource right there waiting for you to enjoy. So go download it right now at your app store, either by typing in BEP, BEP, or the British English Podcast. Links are also in the show notes. Enjoy this episode. Okay, so I went to London when I was 21 years old. I am 33 now. It was part of a broader trip through London. But I was actually very lucky. I got to stay in a house in Kensington, which is a very posh and salubrious part of London. Good word. Good word. Salubrious. Yes. And um, I was very lucky because a friend of mine who I was traveling with, his father is a property developer, and he had just bought this big old mansion and we were allowed to house sit it for six weeks at Christmas time. Goodness me. Oh, so you got the whole experience of Christmas in London. Yes, it was fascinating. It was amazing. It was very atmospheric. We had a cobblestone lane out the back and plenty of fog. So it was very atmospheric walking up to the house after a night at the pub. I like the fact that you had fog. Yes, it was um, it was great because we had a huge downstairs area 
which actually used to be used as the kitchen by the servants of the aristocrat that owned the house. So we had the servants' sleeping quarters upstairs and the kitchens downstairs. But we had this whole four-story terrace to ourselves. It was great. We had a big Christmas dinner in the downstairs area and we invited a whole bunch of random people from the local pub. To be some of your servants? Yes, yes. <laughs> Did you sleep in the servants' quarters? No, no. I uh, took the master bedroom, actually. I, I shotgunned it first. That's a good phrase. Shotgunned it first. Can you explain that one? Okay. So I don't know if it's an Australian phrase, but it's a phrase we use in the English language, which basically means you've called the right to have something over somebody else. So, for example, when you're walking towards the car, someone's driving and there are two other people, everyone wants to sit in the passenger seat. So if you call shotgun, you get the passenger seat first. Exactly. Yeah. And I actually uh, think I remember why this originated. It was to do with hunting and the person in the passenger seat got to use the shotgun to hunt. Ah, It was advantageous to get that good seat to shoot the deer or whatever they were hunting. Wow. Okay. That's a bit of interesting history there. I, I love those bits of interesting history to do with English phraseology. Uh, there's a very interesting one. Do you know where the phrase put a sock in it came from? Well, first of all, shall we explain what put a sock in it means? Yes. So the put, put a sock in it, that means to stop talking, right? Yes. In a rude way. Yes. Well, do you know where that came from? No. It came from the old gramophones in the 1920s. They didn't have a volume knob. In order to control the volume, they would stuff a sock down the big gramophone um, speaker. Yeah, that's really good. I like that one. That's very visual. And that means it's very easy to remember. So guys, think of the gramophone and the sock, maybe even Ben's sock. Would you say that your sock is clean or dirty? Um, right now it's relatively clean. I've only just put them on, but I have been walking around the studio in my socks. So they're probably quite dirty now. All right. So semi-clean, semi-clean sock of Ben's in the gramophone. Very good. Put a sock in it. Shut up basically. All right, let's go on to the theme of today's episode, which is the Great Fire of London. So Ben knows a lot about this, so I'm going to hand it over to him to begin with. And and you said that you wanted to go over when London was established. Yeah, that's right. I, I thought that it would be uh, helpful to go over the establishment of London, also because it's important to understand the city walls of old London in relation to the events of the Fire of London. So, London was established by the Romans and the Roman Empire in around AD 47 to 50. So almost 2,000 years ago. So in 2050, we can celebrate London's 2,000th birthday. Wow. And to be appropriate, we would say a different word, wouldn't we? The original word of London? Ah, yes. So London was originally called Londinium, which is a Latin word. Now, London came about because the local Britons, when they were trying to pronounce London in their accent, started to say Lundane. Wow. Lundane. Lundane. And then that became London. London. Today's London. Today's London. And in Italy, they say Londra. Uh, I'm not sure, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. I think so. Londra. So Londinium. Yes. And in that time, the, the Romans basically built a fortification around the city. Uh, and that was the original defensive wall of London. Right. And that covered the rough area of what is today's city of London. Okay. And today's city of London, guys, if you're walking around the city yourself, think of the north side of the Thames. And uh, you've got the Tower of London to the east. 
And then the London Transport Museum, Somerset House, uh, London Transport Museum to the west side of it. So those are the kind of the borders of City of London. And then it goes just shy of Farringdon and Finsbury and Whitechapel. So if you're in that area, that whole bit got burned down, right? Yeah, about 80% of the old city of London within the old walls, the medieval city, got burnt down. Now, the city of London was abandoned by the Romans when the Roman Empire fell in the 5th century and continued to build up of its own accord. In the 18th century, the old city walls were eventually torn down in order to help traffic flow. But they did exist during the Fire of London. Okay, right. So, yeah, now we've set the, uh, the idea of it all. Let's talk about the actual Fire of London or the Great Fire of London. And do you know anything about there being other fires before that? Were there? Yeah, I believe there were several fires before it. There was one in the 1300s and there was a couple in the early 1600s, but nothing to the extent of the fire that tore through London in 1666. There we go, 1666. Yes. The fire basically started on midnight of the 2nd of September. That was a Sunday and it went for four days until Wednesday the 5th, or some people say the, the 6th, the Thursday. Um, and the fire started at a bakery in Pudding Lane. Pudding Lane? Yes. Uh, you can actually still see a monument that was erected after the Fire of London right near Pudding Lane today. Okay. So Pudding Lane still exists, even though it was burnt to the ground. Yes, yes. And uh, we can get into why that is uh, in a little bit. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh, teaser. I like it. Yeah. So the fire started at a bakery in Pudding Lane owned by a baker called Thomas Farnia. And the fire then spread, ultimately taking 13,500 houses, 87 parishes and churches, 44 company halls, the Royal Exchange, the Custom House, St. Paul's Cathedral, which is old St. Paul's Cathedral, not the current one. Yeah, that was rebuilt because of it, wasn't it? Exactly, yes. I heard that it got so hot that it it actually melted the metal framework of that ceiling. Yes, yes. So the ceiling was made of lead at the time. And basically, uh, it was one of the few buildings inside the city walls that wasn't immediately combustible because everything inside the city walls was made from wood and thatch roofing. But the cathedral was made of stone and lead roofing. But what happened the year prior to 1666 was that King Charles II had commissioned a restoration of St. Paul's Cathedral by Sir Thomas Wren. And so the cathedral was surrounded by wooden scaffolding. Oh, King Charles. <laughs> How's that for timing? So that's I mean, he did the right thing, I suppose, thinking, you know, let's fix this guy up. This thing needs a bit of attention. Well, if it wasn't for that wooden scaffolding, I dare say that the St. Paul's Cathedral would, the old St. Paul's Cathedral would still be around today. Was it predominantly made of lead or that was just the ceiling? That was just the ceiling. The rest was a a stone structure. And what made St. Paul's very combustible was that because of the way that it was built in stone and it had a lead lead ceiling and it actually had quite a wide plaza around it, open plaza, almost acting as a natural firebreak, everyone in the city piled all the books and all of the combustible elements that they wanted to save inside St. Paul's to keep it. But then eventually a stray spark hit the scaffolding and the whole thing caught a light. Okay. And yeah, that's really interesting. The the fire break, that was the main thing that they tried to use 
from what I was reading to prevent the spread, right? Yes. So the old firefighting techniques um, at the time were basically they uh, were basically a combination of hooking into the the piping system under the ground, which were wooden pipes made from uh, elm, and pumping water out and pulling down houses in order to stop the spread of fire, to create an artificial fire break. Yeah, yeah. They used these um, these hooks, I think, these long sticks with hooks on them, and they would pull the actual ceiling, the, the thatched roofing down to create a, a gap. Yes, that's right. Yes. And I also heard that because of the way that they built stories, like the levels on top of each other, they built it wider each story. That's right. And if you think of a lane, guys, with houses on either side... The fourth story of both sides was almost touching, wasn't it? That's right. <laughs> Did you know that we have a 45 minute long audiobook that also comes with an ebook to read along with, teaching you 10 of the most useful idioms that you can use to sound like a native level speaker? You know, the next time that you want to impress someone, be it for a job interview or an English exam, like the IELTS test, then you can whip out one of these phrases and really wow them. We've selected these 10 because they're daily idioms. They're ones that you can use in many, many situations. So you won't be wasting your time learning a random idiom that you'll, you'll never really get the chance to use. And the even better news is that we're giving this audiobook and ebook away for free. And all you need to do is find it in the show notes of this episode, head over to the BritishEnglishPodcast.com and find it in the homepage, or just like the free worksheet for this episode, go to the BritishEnglishPodcast.com forward slash freebies. That is F-R-E-E-B-I-E-S. So the reason they built the houses like that was because they had limited space on the narrow streets below and they wanted to maximize the tenant space in the buildings. So instead of encroaching on the street below, they would encroach and come outwards on the levels above to the point where the buildings were nearly touching. So there was no real fire break between any of these houses. Yeah, that's And that's why the fire was able to spread so quickly. Another technique I heard about was the fireman's chain. Very simple technique. Yes. They basically would take leather buckets down to the Thames and they would have a chain of hundreds of volunteers and they would chain leather buckets of water up the chain and throw it on the fire and then bring the buckets back down to the water and go back up. Yeah, right. Oh, but wouldn't they like make a, a chain of humans, like passing it from one to the other? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So they would uh, take these leather buckets from, from the water source all the way up to the fire and then back down like a conveyor belt. Yeah, so they're all stationary and then they just pass it for a person. Yes. And actually, the reason that they couldn't do this, the outbreak of the fire, was due to inaction by the then Lord Mayor of the town. Yeah, Thomas Bloodworth. Thomas Bloodworth, yes. He was uh, considered by his contemporaries, uh, contemporaries to be a relatively ineffective yes man. At the time when the fire started, he didn't give the fire brigade uh, or the firefighters permission to pull down any of the surrounding houses. Now, there was a very important reason for this because he needed orders from King Charles. He needed a royal decree. Otherwise, he would have personally been liable for the cost of the property. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I heard um, that he was disturbed in the middle of the night because it was in the middle of the night that the fire 
uh, started and somebody came up to him and said, Lord Mayor, we need to put, uh, pull these buildings down. And, and he apparently said, pish, a woman could piss it out. Yes, yes. A very famous, very famous exaltation. Is that a, a good word? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's actually an interesting reason for his inaction, his inaction, though. Although his contemporaries blamed him, one of the the main pieces of context that we need to point out here is that previously we just had the uh, civil war in England. So the civil war, for anybody who doesn't know, was when the anti-royalists or the Republicans tried uh, did over, in fact, overthrow the king and take control under Oliver Cromwell. Ah. And after a short period, Oliver Cromwell lost control to the royals again, the royal army, and he was beheaded, and the royals took back control under Charles II. He was beheaded, right? So that's what happens when... When you try and uh, overthrow your, your royal guardians. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so don't, if you're in England, do not try and overthrow the queen. No. She will behead you in the town square. Yeah, or worse, maybe do what they did to Guy Fawkes. What did they do to Guy Fawkes? They put him on a... Weirdly, I feel like it's comfortable because they put him on a chair. Normally, I think they would put somebody on a spike or something, but I think they put him on a chair atop a bonfire and then lit him and... Oh, I thought did the the what is it drawing and quartering? Oh yeah, hung drawn hung and drawn and quartered, which was a very ghastly practice where they used to hang the uh, the convicted just before they died. They would take them down, and then while they were still alive, they would cut them open and take out their organs, and then quarter them by horses pulling in four different directions on their limbs. I remember that one. The drawing is in the cutting. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. They do it at the end of Braveheart, if anybody's ever seen that. <laughs> That's what's happening to Mel Gibson when he's grimacing and you can't see what's happening off screen. <laughs> if you're having your lunch, guys. I hope you enjoyed that image. <laughs> okay, so there was reason for his inaction. Yeah, so basically, King had offered uh, his royal troops to come into the city. Now, the city was a stronghold for the Republicans at the time, and there was still a lot of tension between the Republicans and the king. And so the king had offered his royal guard to go in and help, but the city proper, the city officials, and Thomas Bloodworth had rejected that help. Um, and he allowed the fire to get out of control. And unfortunately, the fire and Pudding Lane was very close to the Thames. Now, this is important because the fire very quickly got down to the Thames and set fire to the the water wheels, which would spin the water and and push it through the piping systems that they would use traditionally to help put out fires. Ah, uh, okay. So they didn't have a way to put out, put out the fire that they would normally use. That's yeah. right. I also heard something about the fact that uh, because of the wind, it was uh, very quick to spread in the wrong direction. And there was lots of flammable products around the Thames because of the, the docking and the, the shipping. And there was some sort of, I can't remember the, the paste that they used to use, but it was really flammable stuff. Yeah. And it would just... Yeah, so the docks were a place where merchants would pick up goods. So there was a lot of warehouses and storehouses down there that had a lot of highly flammable materials, a lot of paper. But they also contained a lot of gunpowder because ships would take gunpowder at that time to the conflict with the Dutch. Right, yes. And there were a lot of private residences that still had gunpowder in the city because they were worried about another conflict with the royals. Uh-huh. And you said about off off um, while we weren't recording, you were saying about the Dutch and how were we at 
war. During this fire, there was the Anglo. Uh, England was in the middle of the Anglo-Dutch conflict. So they were basically, without going into it too much, they were at war with the Dutch. Now, this is an interesting point. This leads to an interesting point. Uh, during the fire of London, uh, a lot of the locals who had been dispossessed from their homes started to look for a scapegoat. And what one of the rumors that were, uh, one of the rumors that was circling was that this was an international terrorist plot by the Dutch and the French to destroy London as a precursor to an invasion. Now, the reason this came about is not just because of the current context of the war, but what was happening was the, Lon- the London fire was so big and the, the wind was so strong that the embers from the fire were being pushed over into random areas well away from the fire and starting localized fires outside of uh, the, main, the main area of the spread of the fire. So people thought that these fires were being set deliberately. And so what happened was it actually led to, on the Wednesday, on the Tuesday and Wednesday, it led to, a, led to a lot of street violence against local immigrant populations of French and Dutch in the streets. People were beaten to death with metal poles. <gasps> People were lynched in the streets. Um, there was a lot of mob violence. Whoa. And the fire, although it was humongous, it didn't actually, well, according to some, it didn't actually kill that many. No. Well, the initial estimates of the fire were put at a couple of hundred, but in more recently, uh, the estimates have been put at a few thousand. Ah, okay. I, I read even like nine people died. Ostensibly, only nine people died. I liked well, that word. Ostensibly, that's a good one. Well, there's actually, um, we've also got to take into account the refugee camps that were set up outside the walls of London. At this time, we're in uh, September, so we were moving through to winter and a lot of these makeshift camps were not good protection from the colds of winter and a lot of people starved and died of cold okay but not but that was indirect indirectly yes yeah. that's true that's true okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah but i i heard that uh, one of the people at the bakery was the first victim yes it was a maid i believe who worked in the bakery who was too scared to leave the property and she became the first victim of the fire uh, i'm gonna very make a very uh, indecent comment. She should have pissed it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that's what he was getting at. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, we're going to leave the uh, first part of this episode here. We're going to continue with uh, everything and uh, more in part two and part three. But uh, if that's all you have time for today, guys, we will see you next week on the British English podcast. Thank you very much, Ben. Appreciate that. Not a worry. But you're going to stick around for part two and three. Absolutely. And I hope you guys stick around too, because there's more to hear about. Whoa. Good teaser. Yes. We'll see uh, why some of the modern accoutrements of London exist. Oh, ho, ho. All right. Until next time, guys. See you soon. We will leave it there for part one of today's episode. Thank you very much for listening up to this point. If you did want to listen to part two and part three of this conversation, then you can head over to the thebritishenglishpodcast.com and check out the premium podcast or academy memberships. The premium podcast gives you access to the full conversation along with extended glossaries, transcripts and flashcards, whereas the Academy gives you all of that plus exclusive videos and audios for the season-based episodes, explaining the vocabulary, exampling them, giving you quizzes, writing assignments and 
weekly speaking classes on Zoom. But if you were just here for part one of this conversation, then I thank you very much for stopping by. I hope you enjoyed the show. Do grab that free worksheet by clicking the link in the show notes. My name's Charlie, and I will see you next week on the British English Podcast.